The New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's great to be with you and welcome to In Town. Um, I think that we are we have about a third of our church that is out with new babies. We've had, I think, five births in the last month. So um, congratulations to um, all of those parents who aren't here. Uh, that's kind of our church growth strategy is just giving birth to children. That's in one of our later core values. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But we are looking at our core values or what we're calling our operating principles. And last week we looked at lead with love. And this morning it's welcome into community. And we define this by saying that Jesus extended radical welcome to everyone. We therefore extend welcome to the same people that he did. In town seeks to be a safe place to belong, to doubt, to fail, and to grow. Let's pray. Father, lead us during this time. Father, if we are looking in from the outside, if we're here for the very first time, uh, if we're confused by the fact that we're here, we never thought we'd see ourselves in a church again on Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us something to hang on to, to contemplate, to consider during this time of reflection, and would you take a step towards us, Lord. For those of us who do find our home here, I pray that you would grant us a compelling vision Give us a purpose, give us hope, and give us a connection with our church through this particular core value as well as the others. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last year, David Brooks wrote a stunning, fantastic column in the New York Times called The Power of the Dinner Table, and he tells the story of Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson, who began opening up their dinner table to friends of their son, Santiago, who they learned uh, were going to school hungry. And so they started inviting these people into their home. And over time, these dinners grew to 20, 25 people at one time. And many would crash afterwards on the basement floor or upstairs in one of the bedrooms because what they learned was that these children, these kids, were not only hungry, but many of them were homeless. One 20-year-old, 21-year-old woman said that this was the first time 
that she had sat down at a family meal since the age of 11. David Brooks says, the kids call Kathy and David mom and dad, and they turn towards them like plants toward the sun, turn towards their love like plants toward the sun. David Brooks, if you know him, he's this highly educated, wealthy, urbanite, very kind of buttoned-down conservative. And he started visiting this group, not for a story, but because he said during last year's election he needed a weekly uplift. And he said that when he met one of the regulars, I held out my hand to shake his, and he looked at it, and he said, we hug here. And they've been hugging and hanging on to one another since then. David and Kathy, the parents of this dinner, have set up a charitable organization called AOK for all our kids to help each kid come into their fullness. And last year, four of them went to college and one of them joined City Year, the National Service Organization. And at the very end of this column, David Brooks says that he has received an enormous gift from this group, the complete intolerance of social distance, the complete intolerance of social distance. Christianity teaches us that we are created in the image of God, and it means that we are not just individuals, but we are individuals in community, that the Bible itself takes shape and emerges out of a largely Hebrew mindset, which was much more communal than we think of ourselves. And you can see this in letters like the one we read today in Ephesians, where Paul consistently talks about the gospel given to people, not just persons. He speaks to us. He speaks to the church. He speaks to you all or you guys. It would have been much easier for him to get this concept across if he had grown up in the South like I did, because he could just say y'all in all of his letters, y'all. This is to y'all. It's so consistent, in fact, this language is, this communal thinking, that we actually have to be careful drawing individual applications from his writings because he's almost always addressing the gathered community, we, not I. And the cultivation of love, of kindness, of sanctification, of inclusion, of holiness, all is meant to take shape inside of a living body inside of the church. And we see this in Jesus as well. We see this when he's asked to teach his disciples to pray. He gives them a communal prayer, not an individual prayer. He tells them that they together are the light of the world. And in the prayer that we looked at a few weeks ago in John 17, the longest prayer is all about community and togetherness, that his disciples are in following a purpose in their wired togetherness. His gospel is powerful enough to create unity out of diversity, to tear down walls of suspicion and hostility and to cultivate communities of people who have no business being together except for Him and except for His good news. So it makes total sense that Paul would use a word like to describe the social reality that the gospel is supposed to create. He says in our passage, so Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off as well as to you 
who were near. It literally says he came and evangelized peace. That was what he was selling to those who were bent towards hostility, to separateness, to individuality. He was selling peace, evangelizing peace that was so powerful that it could bring people together. He says in verse 14, Paul does, that Jesus is our peace, that he came making peace, that he came proclaiming peace. This was a pretty big deal to Jesus. And Paul tells us that we all need this peace. And then he's going to tell us about needing a purpose and then about needing a person. His peace, verse 14, makes the two groups into one. His peace has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is he talking about here? He's talking about this Gentile church in Ephesus being joined to the community of God's people, the Jewish people historically. And that the Jews had been given all of these signs and cultural practices and religious practices such as circumcision. And over time, their identity as God's people had been centered upon these things. And so it was logical for them to think that if the Gentiles are going to be included, they need to adopt all of these practices that have a thousand years of history to them. They need to become like us. Their pathway into the church needs to be like our pathway. But Jewish Paul comes saying that becoming a Christian is giving up any and all claim upon God except Jesus and his life and his work. It means severing completely any and all means of self-justification and instead being granted access, being given peace, being made alive by the power of God. And what we see if we think about this is that we, be, we come to fully understand those things that we use for self-justification only as we see God granting grace to people that don't have those things. We see our elder brother tendencies when grace goes to the younger brother who has no claim upon the father. The elder brother has worked hard. He has made his way in this family. He has a right to the feast. The younger brother has given his rights away. And so the elder brother is angry when his father embraces him anyway. We only begin to see what Jesus has forgiven us of when we practice forgiveness towards others in community. And then he says, verse 11, Therefore, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised have been brought in. What does this mean? What does this mean that this, the pathway to peace is our memory? We're to remember something. Who are the people that you are around that you think, they get me, they know me, and I know them, and I can go weeks or months without talking to them, and when I get back together, it's like no time has passed. Who are those people for you? Some of those people for me are people that I shared life with in high school, and I got to spend time a few weeks ago with a friend who grew up in the house behind me. And we've started a practice of traveling to each other's place and going to see concerts together. And so I got to spend a few days with uh, one of my best friends from high school a few weeks ago. 
And when I'm around him, even though there's now 25 years since we did life daily together and a lot has transpired, we live on different sides of the country, we have different jobs, we, there's a lot that is different among us. But at the same time, I am able to slip into that relationship 25 years later, even though we do text and we do Facebook, but we rarely spend time together, and yet I'm totally at ease with him because we had a shared experience that we lived together almost daily in a very formative time of our lives. We have a very foundational wired togetherness. He gets me and I get him. And you see this in immigrant group, immigrant groups. You see this in refugees. You see this in people who have shared a tragedy together, people who have lost children, people who have an affinity for an artist or a musician. You see this in hippies and CEOs at Grateful Dead concerts, hugging and dancing together. There's so much that's different about them in their normal world, but they get each other at some level through the music. Paul is talking here about memorializing our own inclusion in such a way that being included in the people of God grants us a shared experience with other Christians that transcends our differences. Despite our differences, I get you. Because I understand my own inclusion. I know what it took for me to get in. And so I understand you at a deep level, even though superficially we're so different. Remember what Paul is saying is that you had no claim upon God by your birthright like the Jews did. You were granted status. You were brought in. You were included. God welcomed you. This is your foundational identity. And this shared identity in community should transcend and relativize all of those things that tell us that we should not be together, that we have no business sharing life together. Peace comes in the midst of difference and diversity. That's point one. Point two is that Paul also gives us here a purpose. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers to this community, but fellow citizens, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, there is a reason that these Gentiles have been brought near. There's a purpose to their salvation, and there's a purpose to yours. Every time I buy Legos for my kids, I just look at them and stare and just think, this is an amazing toy. The exactitude and the level of perfection that has to go into each of these little blocks, the zero tolerance for defect, even though they're making millions upon millions, is amazing. And you can see this engineering marvel in this tiny little Lego. But Legos aren't meant to just exist on their own, right? They're meant to be put together. And when you buy a set, it's not to put all of the green ones and all the yellow ones over here or organize them by size. No, they have a purpose. They are made to be joined together. They're exquisitely created, and they have an individuality that they don't lose but they find their purpose in something that's bigger. 
Jesus' church would not have looked right with only Jewish Legos. <laughs> he would not have looked right with only Gentile blocks. These people, Gentiles and Jews, retained their individual identity, but they were made, they were created, they were meant to be joined together to form a holy temple. And there's something about that unity in diversity that reflects something essential about God, that God is one and three, that God is three persons in one essence, that God is unity in diversity. And the church is meant to mirror that reality in our social reality. The church doesn't look right. It doesn't look like Jesus wants it to look if all of the blocks look the same and think the same and vote the same. We are our best, our healthiest selves, and God's church is most effective when we are joined together with people who are different from us, not the same. We have on Sunday nights at our house a, a family meeting, and it's the, it's the highlight of the week, right, kids? There's a collective groan that goes on around the house when we say, time for family meeting. But it's so important because we get together and we talk about our calendar, what we're facing this week, what's on our minds, what's on our hearts, what are we struggling with. And so I want to have a bit of an aside, a bit of a family meeting here. And if you're visiting, if you're new, if you're just passing through, you can pay attention or you can take a quick nap. But um, for us who belong to in town or considering, I want to I have a moment where I share some of my anxieties and, and my fears. One of the things that's so important to me and to the leaders is that in town feels safe, like David and Kathy's dinner table, that it's safe, that you have a seat there that you're safe to fail, that you're safe to doubt, that you're safe to be different. You're safe to be yourself. You're safe to say what you're really thinking. A community of welcome. And frankly, I want to be transparent with you for a moment. I have great anxiety about that. I fear saying some things. Far too often, I am scared to tell you what I really think, and so I often feel more like a politician trying to keep people happy rather than a preacher because I end up triple editing my words to make sure I don't step on too many toes. I don't offend one part of the congregation. I try to go right down the center so that people on either extreme won't get mad and leave because we can't afford it, literally. Um, and this isn't to chastise you at all because we've all inherited this idea of a church that doesn't allow for diversity. And I imagine that you might share my fears. What are you afraid to say to someone else in the congregation that you might think would get you judged or ostracized or exiled? And maybe more importantly, what are people afraid to say to you that you might exile, ostracize, or judge them over. Or maybe we could put it more positively, and Scott helped me on this a great deal. What would in town look like if people, including the elders, the leaders, pastor, could speak their minds about where they're wrestling, how their beliefs were evolving, what their sins were, 
what things they were struggling with? What if we weren't afraid anymore? What if we were really safe for one another, not just theoretically in Jesus, but with each other now because of Jesus? What if we could practice that peace that transcends our differences? Now in Christ Jesus, verse 12, you who once were far away have been brought near. For what? In Him you are being built together to become this holy temple, to become a dwelling which God lives by His Spirit. We've absorbed this idea that the purpose of church is to reflect and reinforce our values and our theological convictions. And so we thus choose a church based on how closely it mirrors our theological present state. And then we leave if the metrics change, right? And there's part of me that is anxious because of my own fear and my own sin, but there's part of it that is just reality because we've seen this not only in the church at large, but here at Intown, where people leave over minor issues or secondary issues when they share something that is so monumentally powerful as the peace of Jesus together. Peace is not found in uniformity, but in having a purpose that is so compelling and so powerful and so demanding that it transcends our individual preferences, that it relativizes our conflicts. The Discovery Channel has this wonderful documentary called When We Left Earth, and it was, it's about the Gemini and Apollo missions. And Frank Borman was one of the astronauts that was part of the first crew to circle the moon. Can you imagine the first person to go that far? And he says in the documentary that they thought they had about a two-thirds chance to live, which means a one-third chance to die. And he said, but nothing was more important to us than the mission, not our safety and not our lives. And he says that there is no question that if that spaceship was a coffin, I would have flown it gladly. Jesus is saying, look, you have been brought near. I have laid down everything. I have given you insider status that can never be revoked. And your purpose is to now live together, sharing that status equally with one another, to become a dwelling that God lives by His Spirit, a dwelling, a church, a community that feels like God lives here, a community where people encounter the living God, where people get to meet Him, where people get to receive His grace. In other words, a community of welcome. A community where difference isn't eradicated. Difference is celebrated. It's actually vital. Unity not in uniformity, but unity in diversity. Peace in diversity. And we get this finally through a person. And this is no surprise. Because peace here is not an abstract concept. It's personal because it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. But now, verse 13, in the person of Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Christ, by his personal sacrifice, by his life and work. It is not ethnicity, it is not heritage, it is not theological tradition, it is not your behavior. At the center of the church is a person who loves you so much that in spite of all your failure and sin, in spite of all your farness, he brought you near. He gets death so you get welcome. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And this radically undermined those who looked to their cultural heritage, who looked to their conformity with the law, those who looked with their, to their circumcision as their ticket into the kingdom because they were tasked with receiving pagan, unclean, hayseed Gentiles. We have no conception of what that would be like for them. This was such a huge hurdle for them, the elder brother, to give the prodigal children the same grace and inclusion and welcome that they had been given. We only come to fully understand the things that we use for self-justification when we see Jesus giving grace to people who don't have those things. So I guess we need to ask individually and corporately, who stands outside our circle of inclusion? Who stands outside the circle of Jesus' grace? Is it a friend who wronged you? And you're someone who doesn't wrong people, so you can't forgive them. Is it someone you disagree with? And you're generally right, so you can't understand how they could be so wrong. Is it a person who hasn't come into the church in the same way that you have? They don't have the qualifications that you do. They don't have the history with the church that you do. They don't have the behavior that you do. Rowan Williams, who is one of my favorite theologians, says this, and it's a little bit wordy and long, but I think it's important. He says, the unselfing involved in union with Christ's death is made real. It's not abstract. It's not esoteric. He says, it's made real in the public and social world. The displacing of the ego becomes a giving place to others. As God has given place to all in His Son, we love because we are loved, because our place with the Father is secured by Jesus. We know ourselves to be accepted without qualification and so have no need of the self-assertive struggle to win a status, to win justification. We have understood that the final security is God's gift and therefore others will equally find their security in this gift, in our humility, in our humility and emptiness in service to them. The gospel takes shape in the social realities that we live in and the communities that we occupy. And the gospel gives us a complete intolerance of social distance. The people who called Kathy and David, mom and dad, didn't gather together because of the things that they were proud of. 
They gathered together because they shared a common need. They were hungry and they needed relationship. Remember, remember, memorialize that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised have been brought in. You have been welcomed at no cost to yourself and at great cost to Jesus. Let's practice remembering this in community. If God grants me grace, then how can I withhold it from other people? Let's pray. Father, help us to remember. Help us to never leave the gospel, to never leave that foundational truth that we are saved by grace through faith. I pray that that would give us understanding, give us solidarity, give us unity with everyone else here that's saved in the very same way. Lord, I pray that we would remember that. As smart as we get, as much theology as we learn, as many layers of knowledge that we place upon that, I pray that our foundational identity would always, always be the gospel of grace. And let us be a church that preaches that and lives by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.